This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Just a heads up, y'all. The following episode contains language that some people may find offensive. Like most people should find offensive if they hear it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Majdiwadi. You may not have heard of him, but he's pretty well known in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Three generations of the Wadi family living the American dream on this spot for more than 30 years. Majdi Wadi is Palestinian-American. He's a devout Muslim and the CEO of the Holy Land brand. It's a family-owned grocery store and a restaurant and a hummus factory. Sound more familiar now? Maybe you picked up Holy Land hummus at Costco or saw Wadi on the Food Network's Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. The Holy Land is a little piece of the Middle East in the Midwest. Thanks to the Wadi family, who came to Minneapolis by the way of Jordan and Kuwait. But a lot has changed since the Wadis were kicking it with Guy Fieri. Mm-hmm. On Thursday morning, the CEO of Holy Land Deli and Grocery put out a statement on Facebook saying in part that he had fired his daughter from the company after social media posts that she made with racial slurs had resurfaced. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. I'm Gene Demby. And this is Code Switch. From NPR. Just three days after police in Minneapolis killed George Floyd and protests erupted in that city... Leanne Waddy's anti-black, anti-Semitic, anti-gay tweets were everywhere. God already punished you for being black, so why would you make it worse by being gay? Hashtag shit people in my family say. When a nip from northeast Minneapolis threatens to come back to kill my dad and his family once he's out of jail, hashtag OMG, hashtag fucking scared. Nips are poor. She went full hard R. Wow. Yeah, and that's not even the half, okay? Um, That nonsense that we just heard, she tweeted that in 2012. A few years later, in 2016, she posted a photo of her and a monkey Mm. on IG with the caption, quote, made friends with this little N-word today, and it wasn't (sighs) N-word. And this isn't all. This isn't all. There's more. (laughs) So now, Leanne's dad, Majdiwadi, is fighting to save his family's reputation and their business. And he says he wants to make amends. And to help him do all that, he called up a black Muslim leader in Minneapolis, Imam Makram El-Amin. I'll say what he said. He called me because he respects my family. He called me because we are one of the prominent African-American Muslim families in this city, in this state. You know, he called me because he needed to. I called him. I said, you know, you're busy. I need to see you. There is a situation here, and I need your help, not help to bail me. And I said, Brother Makram, I'm here to learn. Tell me what to do. So is there a path to redemption for Majdiwadi once this kind of damage has been done? And is it the job of a black man to guide Majdiwadi to that path? Gene, NPR's National Desk correspondent Layla Fadel called me about this story when she was reporting in Minneapolis after the police killing of George Floyd reignited the protests for black lives there. 
And I was like, this right here, this is a code switch story. It is a code switch story. And Layla is here to talk to us about it. Uh, Layla, welcome back. What's good? How you been? I've been good. Thanks, you too. I'm really glad to be back. I want to take you first to North Minneapolis, the heart of Black Minneapolis. Nate, how you doing, brother? Good, man. It's good to see you, man. You out of quarantine. Yes, sir. Good to see you, boss. Yes, sir. I, I'm sure. I'm sure, man. We're just walking the beat, just seeing how folks is doing, you know? That's Imam Makram Elamine, who we just heard from. He got that phone call from Majdi Wadi asking for help. Right. So on this day, he's out on the main thoroughfare of the neighborhood, West Broadway. We're a couple blocks from the historic African-American mosque he leads, Masjid An-Nur, Mosque of Light. How you doing, brother? Every few steps, he stops to greet community leaders, friends. How you doing, brother? Good to see you, man. I got a mask for you. That's a Bears fan ribbing him for his Vikings mask. A lot of people are out these days to help or to get help. This is a food desert. It is a food desert. So this has already been here. When you have things like COVID and then the uprising and things of that nature, all these things are coming to a head. It's, it's, it's the perfect storm right now. It's literally the perfect storm. So between the pandemic, the protests against police brutality, there's little to no access to food. Supermarkets had been closed about a week on the day we're walking around, so the neighborhood banded together to support their most vulnerable. Elamine's been in Minneapolis since the 70s. His father joined the Nation of Islam in the 50s in Chicago before Elamine was born. That message to do for self, build black power and uplift, it appealed to him in the midst of racism and oppression. So his dad was in the Nation, but is Makram Elamine in the Nation? Because I know a lot of stuff went down there. Right, exactly. So, no. When Elijah Muhammad died, he was the leader of the Nation of Islam. His son, Warith Dean Muhammad, was chosen as the new leader, and he rejected this idea of black separatism, brought his followers to Orthodox Islam, and that included Elamine's parents. Is that how they ended up in Minnesota from Chicago? Yep. He moved uh, to Minneapolis, his father did, to convert a Nation of Islam temple into a traditional mosque. And that was happening around the country. It started as a storefront. Today, Imam Makram el leads the community in a freestanding building with a dome and also runs a community service program called... El Maun is from the 107th chapter. It means neighborly needs. So right now, El Maroon is in full swing, serving thousands of people a week. It provides employment services, hot meals, and the carpeted prayer area that's closed for worship is instead covered in plastic wrap and supplies. We've got like 2,000 masks that are coming in. They're going to be stuffed and sent out as well. These are boxes of dry goods that's going to go to... But he wants this to be more, more than just a place for people to turn to for survival, for their basic needs. This is just a symptom of a bigger problem. He wants his mosque and community center to be a place that will address the legacy of a broken criminal justice system, redlining, and disinvestment in North Minneapolis. In this moment, that's going to take investment. So we're calling on those who have benefited to invest now. So investment from those who have benefited, who is he talking about there? Yeah. 
Well, he's talking about businesses that built their wealth in communities like this one, some Arab and Muslim owned or owned by other immigrants of color to invest in the communities that made them. So that means places like the corner stores that in some neighborhoods were or are the only access point to food, but also typically don't carry fresh produce and opt instead for junk food and what Elamine calls poison, lottery tickets, alcohol. Elamine talked about how these businesses ended up here. They hadn't really been allowed because of the power structure, white supremacy, and other structural things that have happened to really set up shop in other communities, right? So they have found homes across the country amongst African Americans. In some cases, you know, it feels like folks are coming in, taking advantage of the buying power, uh, even in quote-unquote poor communities. They're strong buying power, otherwise they wouldn't be here. Um, But the idea of them coming in has fueled tensions over the course of time. And not all of them, and I don't want to paint such a broad picture, but I would say too many. Yeah, and this tension between immigrants of color and African Americans, it's longstanding, and it's something we've talked a lot about on Code Switch. Um, You know, we're coming up here on the 30th anniversary of the death of Latasha Harlins. When she was just 15 years old, a Korean immigrant who owned a convenience store here in South L.A. shot her in the back of the head. And Latasha was just trying to buy orange juice. Yeah, last week would have been Latasha Harlins's 45th birthday. And Soon Jadu, the store owner who shot her, was effectively sentenced to just community service. And she had to pay for Harlins' uh, funeral costs. But that whole incident, Latasha Harlins' death, became, you know, along with the acquittal of the police officers who beat Rodney King, one of the big sparks of the L.A. riots in 1992. And when black people took to the streets and when buildings started getting burned, many of the businesses that were destroyed, that were targeted were owned by Korean-Americans. Yeah, and there's still a lot of hurt over what happened on both sides Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all these years later, you know. And that's just one example of how this tension has played out. There are more. Right. Exactly, yeah. And that tension is always just one spark away from another fire because the underlying issue is still there, that these businesses are not seen as respectful to the community that they serve. There is a unique situation with American Muslims. They are one of the most racially and ethnically diverse groups in the country, linked by their faith, but also the discrimination they face. But that doesn't mean there isn't anti-Blackness, even with at least 20 percent of American Muslims being Black. And Elamine's mosque, like many African-American mosques, it's always sat right at that flashpoint, that intersection of race, culture, ethnicity, socioeconomic background. And in the wake of George Floyd's killing, Elamine's phone, it's been ringing off the hook because those historic tensions he describes, they're igniting. He's getting calls for guidance from non-Black Muslims and then angry calls from the Black community asking how he's going to handle this. The corner store that called the police on George Floyd, that was Arab-American owned. The owner also a Palestinian Muslim like Wadi. By the way, that owner has expressed deep remorse. And then just a few days later, those old, racist, bigoted tweets from Majdi Wadi's daughter, Leanne, they resurfaced. Holy Land's owner said that he fired his own daughter, saying that he will not tolerate that type of behavior. That's when Makaramelamine got that call from Majdi Wadi for help. My family has supported his business for many, many years. Many years. Um, we had a relationship with my mother as well, who also called me in the midst of this, was like, what's going on with this? But just to be clear, Holy Land isn't a corner liquor store in North Minneapolis, right, with bars on the windows. It's, first of all, it's a few miles away 
uh, from where you just took us. And if I understand this right, it's a full-service grocery store, among many other things. Right. It's a family business that serves a multiracial customer base, most of its employees, uh, people of color, immigrants, famous for its hummus, its halal meat. And they actually don't sell liquor at all. And that's why Elamine says this racist incident makes it even worse. He talked about this with me later. It was seen to be a departure from that. Like that was a little something better. You know, this person came in, grow their business to a multi-million dollar business and be, I mean, lots of support from all facets of the community, African-Americans, Somali, East, whatever, right? I mean, everybody, they were, they were a go-to place. He says Holy Land was supposed to be different, but now people are questioning that. He told me a lot of African-Americans came to Islam attracted to the teachings of social justice, equity, accountability, but they found anti-blackness in non-black Muslim spaces. The way that they look condescendingly at my people is something that it has been reinforced through society, whether it's through media and all kinds of things. It's been reinforced, and they've bought it. And I, how I know that? Because how they try to interact and treat us. You know, the, the prophet, peace be upon him, talked about your religion is really in your human interactions. It's not what you profess and how flowery and how, what you dress and how long your beard is, all this foolishness. It has nothing to do with that. It's, it's about how you treat people. But when the... When the stuff hits the fan, right, I need you. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This country gave me where nowhere else in the world gave me a home for my kids as a Palestinian, as a refugee. That's Majdi Wadi, and he's showing me around Holy Land in northeast Minneapolis. It started as an idea when Majdi Wadi's brother asked him to come to the U.S. from Jordan and help him expand his little corner store into something bigger. I said, you know what, if I will join you, if I want to be, become part of this business, I need Holy Land to be different than any other business in the United States of America. All of them, they serve good sandwich, good falafel, but they're serving their only their own community. They're not even going across the street. If we want to grow Holy Land, we have to grow Holy Land to serve the six million people that they live in the state of Minnesota. That dream, it's now a reality. He walks bakery. me into the bakery. We have the African bread, we have the Iranian bread, we have the Belgian bread. We have the Iraqi bread, we have the Somalian bread, we have the Ethiopian, East African bread. We have bread from all over the world. 
and bread and cookies. We bake it on a daily basis. So all this, it's in jeopardy because of his daughter Leanne's social media posts. This is now the only location of Holy Land. They were evicted from one, they closed two others, shut down their hummus factory after losing contracts with places like Costco. There's a boycott campaign. The family has received death threats. And so far, he says they've lost millions of dollars, laid off dozens of people, mostly immigrants, that work for the business. One of the hardest days of my life was the other day when I have to meet with my factory employees, 28 families, and tell them, I'm really sorry I'm shutting down my factory. You got to go home. I mean, is this is how we want to solve the problem, by punishing other people? That's hard to hear. Like... Is this going overboard? Does the punishment fit the crime? I'm sure people listening are wondering about that, too. Although, Although we have to say those social media posts from Leanne were horrific. And we just scratched the surface with the ones we played. They they were definitely terrible. Yeah. You know, Bajdiwadi told me when he saw the posts, he was so shocked and so angry. He could barely look at Leanne. As a father, he told her, I love you. But you did a great mistake. You did a huge mistake. I'm not sure how you're going to live with this mistake if you didn't do anything about it. Do you want to live with it for the rest of your life? Do you want to be labeled racist for the rest of your life? So Majdi and his wife have looked for answers about how Leanne learned the things she wrote. I mean, Layla, <laughs> Leanne did hashtag her tweets Shit people in my family say she tagged her cousin in multiple tweets. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I feel like this could be a family affair, maybe. Did you did you ask Majdi Wadi about all that shit people in my family say? Did you ask him? I did. I actually, yeah, I asked him specifically about that hashtag when he was saying, like, where did she learn this? Saying shit family says... I'm not sure where she come. I, I asked her this question. I said, where did you come from this one? When you say, shit, family says, did you ever hear me talking about it? No. Oh, I mean, family in general, her cousin, whatever, whatever. Or, or, you know, I mean, I mean I, till now, she didn't come clear to me. Look, he told me these were things that Leanne wrote in high school at 15. He says that's not an excuse, but she was also going through what he called a bad phase, the only brown Muslim kid in her white high school trying to fit in. I came to America in 1994. She was my first child. Nobody ever told me, which is this is not an excuse, how to raise an Arabic Muslim Palestinian kid in America. Wedi fired Leanne as director of catering, and that was probably within hours of the tweets resurfacing, issued an open letter apologizing for what she said. And he told me multiple times that the posts were disgusting and racist, but that she's a different person now. She also apologized on her IG and in the local press. I want to apologize from the bottom of my heart. They were such like horrible and vile things, and that's not who I am. It's not what I believe in. Leanne chose not to speak to me, but obviously Majdiwadi did, saying he's determined to fix this. He's worried his business won't survive and all his employees will lose their jobs. And he doesn't want this to be what his family's remembered for. This is not the legacy that I want to leave behind me as a racist or, or a father that who raised a racist. As I told you, there is two options around it. It's just to make hire the best PR company in the world. By the way, there is a PR woman in the room with us. Wait, so he did hire 
a PR company. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Apologize for the people. The people, human being, intend to be forgiven by by nature. By nature. After a while, they forget. Have a nice day. Business will come back booming. Is this is what I want? No. This is not what I want. I change my perspective about legacy now. Mm-hmm. I told you the legacy first. I want to be bigger than Chabotli, bigger than Sabra Hamos, bigger than this one. Now I still want to do this, but I'm going to use the money if I succeed in doing this to to reach the ultimate legacy in people's heart by being a role model in the change that this movement is looking for. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So he still wants mm-hmm. to be a huge brand, bigger than Chipotle, but he also wants to be a role model in the movement for black lives. Am I hearing that right? Well, to be clear, it's my understanding from the long interview I did with Wedzi that he wants to lead in his own community, the Arab Muslim community, on how to be a good ally and an anti-racist. It's kind of hard to figure out how seriously to take that, how genuinely we should interpret that. Because a lot of businesses right now in this moment, obviously not in Majdi Wadi's situation, but a lot of businesses are doing anti-racism as ass cover. Yeah, they are. And and he knows people are going to be really skeptical that now mm-hmm. he's starting this. Mm-hmm. Oh, because you've been exposed, now you're going to start working in this one. That, because you lost business, because you lost Costco, because you lost the airport, because... You know what? I'm not going to convince you otherwise. We are determined. I guess I'm I'm still not clear up to this point about what exactly Majdi Wadi is determined to do. Right. Yeah, that's well, that's probably because it feels like he's still figuring this out in real time. Hmm. I don't think he was clear about what he should do. And it's really why he called on Makram El Amin. I mean, this is a guy who didn't have a Twitter account or know the term anti-blackness until all this went down. Uh-huh. He said things like, why can black people call him the N-word in a nice way and he can't say it back? Oof. When you call me that name, I think it's okay to call you that name. And then he said more than once that it was the responsibility of African-Americans to reach out to Arab immigrants like him and help them understand anti-blackness. I believe that the African-American also dropped the ball. We're not by not fighting enough for their rights. They've been fighting for their rights for hundreds of years, but not reaching to us and educating us. Look, culture differences is something that we have to educate ourselves with each other. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. This is going to be real rocky. Mm. Real, real rocky. (laughs) Yeah, you know, he has been here for decades. So, you know, I said said to him, you've been here 30 years. You should know something about this. But he told me, look, I'm a Palestinian immigrant who's had to teach people about my cause as a person with no homeland. And then after Mm 9-11, about Islam, when he and his family were targeted for their faith, their ethnicity. So in his mind... Other communities should do that for him. But what was really most stunning for me was listening to Wadi, a Palestinian-American Muslim who deals with discrimination, oppression in his own right, listening to him start to recognize his own prejudice. And it's something I've heard few Arabs interrogate, at least the ones that I grew up around. You know what? It is in our heart, by design, without us knowing that we have this as a Muslim-Arab community. Uh, whether whether people gonna like it or not, we have this in our heart. It's not just something Leanne said. Maybe maybe Leanne was cut caught. He said he thought about a word sometimes used for black people when he was growing up in Jordan and Kuwait, Abid. Hmm. Abid. Yeah, so it's Arabic, 
and it means slaves. Wow. If you tell me, Majdi, did you ever use it? I will be lying if I says no. But did I use this word to discriminate or be racist? Com- definitely no. I use it because it's a common word and a phrase that I learned. I've been raised to use it. Hmm. Okay, so instead of saying black person or African person, he would just call them slaves. So yeah, he <sighs> says now he gets it. Now he knows it's akin to the N-word and it goes against his family values. Okay, so this goes against his family values. He wants to be part of a solution. And we know he called on one of the most prominent black Muslims in Minneapolis for help. Which I have to say, I feel some type of way about this expectation that Makram Alamin, this black Muslim leader we're talking about, is just going to drop everything and teach him. Teach me how to do better. Yeah, that wasn't lost on Elamine. This crisis, it's the first time Wendy had ever been to his house. And keeping Mm. the door open, it wasn't a decision he came to lightly. He hasn't forgiven. But he is willing to help with a path to redemption because he told me mercy, redemption, it's what his faith teaches. Something we all will seek at some point. But no one gets redemption for nothing. So the lingering question for me is, what did Imam Makram El-Amin say to Majdi Wadi after he got this phone call? What did he say to help him try and redeem himself and his family for all this? Welcome to my humble abode. Thank you. Please, have a seat, yeah. So when a producer and I last met with Imam Makram El-Amin, we're sitting on his porch, a picture of the late Malcolm X hanging in the window behind him. And he told me this is what he asked for in a written memorandum of understanding. We wanted that he be a strategic, committed partner to bringing these conversations to the Muslim community, this anti-blackness to the Muslim community. You can't be on the sideline. You got to come all the way in. And you got to champion this with us now. What does that mean? That, that, that means put his money where his mouth is. Hmm. Put his money where his mouth is. Yeah. And I, I can't say the dollar amount Elamine asked for in that pledge, but it's sizable and earmarked to do what we heard Elamine say he wanted to do with his organization earlier. Address the legacy of redlining, disinvestment in black communities. And the pledge also asked Weddy to open a branch of Holy Land in North Minneapolis. I live in a community that needs jobs. Bring that wonderful business model over here. Train people to hire from here. Do some profit sharing with your employees from over here. Let it become a co-op. The better you do, the community benefits from here. That's different. That's game changing. That's game changing. That says more than I'm sorry. Then he wants Wendy to push to have real conversations about how to combat anti-blackness within the Arab community where he's had a stellar reputation. Many of them look at him in a sense of pride, like, hey, this is, this is our guy. You know, I mean, he's, you know, he, he's the American dream. But the key, Elamine tells me, is once Wadi does use his money, his social capital. Don't try to take credit for it. Don't try to step in and lead it. You, you need to be a support. We know what's needed here. So invest in Makram's nonprofit and invest in other black businesses in North Minneapolis, the black neighborhood bring Holy Land to North Minneapolis and maybe create a co-op and offer training to people in that community. And don't put yourself in front as the leader. I'm also hearing that part as don't expect praise. Mm -hmm. Don't expect all that good press you're used to. (laughs) Um, That is quite an ask. I'm saying. Yeah, it's it is an ask, you know, and Wendy told me he's ready to be that person to make this his top priority. 
He's been uh, writing down his thoughts, and they're actually printed out in front of him when we're talking, things he's thought through this journey of self-reflection, and he reads one. Because you did something wrong in the past does not mean you cannot advocate against it. Now, it doesn't make you hypocrite. You just grew. So, Leila, the question is, has Majdiwadi signed Makram El Amin's Memorandum of Understanding? The answer is no. Hmm. He has convened a group of Arab Muslim businessmen to join him, to educate themselves, fight anti-blackness. And he says he's implementing racial bias training for Holy Land employees. But that pledge, he hasn't signed it. Yeah, that sounds like the playbook. So what does Imam El Amin think of the fact that he hasn't signed this memorandum? Yeah, so he told me he does believe Majdiwad is genuine. He also knows he's hemorrhaging money right now. But that path to redemption that he talks about, he says it won't happen without action. And in this case, he's talking about a monetary investment. On the day we're recording this, I did get an email from Wedi saying his company started a charitable fund. Hmm. Where that money will go, still not clear. If nothing ever happens with this, I think it's going to fracture the community more, the Muslim community. But this is just a microcosm of the whole society. If no real reform or whatever comes out of this here, then we're on a downward spiral. After the break, we're going to talk to Rami Nashashibi. He's been working for years to get Arab Muslim business owners to treat their black clientele with respect. And he doesn't shy away from being provocative. After the killing of George Floyd and and the uprisings and the riots, I saw Palestinian-owned businesses, you know, in places like the south side of Chicago, being protected by their managers and store owners with firearms that were explicitly intended to intimidate the residents around them. How different really is the image of settlers who, in the context of the West Bank, are often protected by armed Israeli defense forces? Uh, How different is that from, you know, store owners who may legally occupy, according to the laws of capitalism, uh, a plot of land in the heart of a black community Um, that they don't live in, that they are not invested in, that they don't support. I kind of saw that that visual analogy was important to make to challenge our community to think, well, what sort of practices would make that analogy absolutely absurd? We're going to have more from Rami. But first, we got to go to this break. Don't go nowhere. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. I'm Jen White, the new host of NPR's 1A, a daily show that asks America what it wants to be. 
hear from people across the country, listeners like you, with conversations for the relentlessly curious on the issues that matter most. Join me next time on 1A from NPR and WAMU. Jean. Shireen. Rami Nashashibi. Code Switch. Rami Nashashibi is a community organizer. He runs the Inner City Muslim Action Network in Chicago, or the acronym is Amman. We People love acronyms on Code Switch. He identifies <laughs> as a Palestinian-American Muslim. Grandson of Palestinian refugees from 1948 who settled in the south side of Chicago at a time when very few Palestinian families were here. Rami's been working with Iman for years to get corner store owners in Chicago, a lot of them Arab and Muslim, to be more integrated into the black neighborhoods they're running their businesses in. Yeah, listening to this, Shireen, it reminds me so much of like the dynamics of the corner stores around me growing up um, in South Philly. We call mm-hmm. them Chinese stores or poppy shops. Chinese stores are poppy shops. So poppy, like... I'm supposed to assume that they're Latinx owned. Right, exactly. That seems really derogatory because I'm sure yeah. folks are saying Chinese stores and they have no idea where folks are from. Yeah, exactly. They could have been Korean, they could have been Vietnamese. And obviously it's telling that people, like the stores are being described by the assumed ethnicities mm-hmm. of the people who run them. Like Because for the people in my neighborhood in South Philly, that was probably the most contact we had in our very segregated black neighborhood with, like, non-Black immigrants. And so there was all these tensions just in the little exchanges in the stores about, you know, cheap but still overpriced fares through the plexiglass. And it went both directions, right? Like, the store Mm -hmm. owners were snippy with the customers. The customers were suspicious of the store owners. It was just a mess. But I digress. Shireen, you spoke to Rami Nashashibi about his work in Chicago and his connection to Makram Elamin and Majdiwadi in Minneapolis. I did. And he's been on the phone with those two and also going back and forth to Minneapolis trying to help them sort this mess out. But to your point, Mm -hmm. I did want to know more about his corner store campaign. You know, what has he been asking Arab Muslim store owners to do to change their business practices? Some of those steps are fairly simple. I mean, it's how do you talk to residents in a way that kind of lifts them up and celebrates them as they come into your store as opposed to contributing to the feeling that they're being watched and surveilled and those types of things. Are you walking into a dignified business where you feel dignified? Are you walking into something that looks like an extension of the prison industrial complex where you're having to negotiate for a bottle of milk behind three inches of bulletproof glass and degraded by having to point towards something and you know, those types of interactions, how to mitigate those things by simply changing the layout of the store, what you offer in the store, your hiring practices. Hmm. How have you gotten Arab corner store owners specifically to recognize their anti-blackness? There was a uh, hip hop artist here in Chicago, he's still around by the name of Mickey Halstead. He had a really controversial track called The Liquor Store out, you know, it really uh, blatantly confronted some of the practices of the liquor store and and the Arab-owned liquor store explicitly. Uh, There was a line in there, something along the lines of, 
You know, I heard the owner say, assalamu alaikum. But if you follow the Quran, why the F you selling bacon? I ride through the white hood. I don't see you. Why you ain't got no stores there? White people drink too? Where do you live? Where your kids go to school? You open up there too? Or are we just the fools? I know you think that we stupid and you feel like we clowns, but we reserve the right to shut your ass down. This what used to be. Yo. <laughs> wow. Not mincing words. I mean. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. When Rami said this track was controversial, uh, Gene, I, I think that might be an understatement. He did say really controversial. <laughs> so maybe like you add an extra really, really, really controversial. So Mickey Halstead calls these liquor store owners leeches. Um, in the video, an Arab store owner has a gun. He's really sinister looking. There's a line in the rap that says he shot a 10-year-old just because they wanted juice. Wow. That is obviously very reminiscent of the circumstances under which Natasha Harlins was killed in what was then South Central, now South L.A., back in 1991. Yeah, and the Arab community in Chicago was absolutely outraged at this portrayal of them. And Rami told me they made it known. But Rami decided, I'm going to use this really, really controversial track as a jumping off point for public conversations between Arab store owners and the black residents who frequented their businesses. So we we did a whole series of things like that over a number of years. And many of the store owners were coming from Palestinian backgrounds. We were able to have a very honest conversation with their own experience of oppression. Think about their sets of practices and experiences through the filter of their experience as Palestinians in, you know, the West Bank or Gaza or wherever they may have been coming from. We were able to generate significant identification, not only with the larger African-American community, but a real honest set of conversations about racist practices and what those look like. So the work that you were doing with Makram El Amin, it was around this, right? Bringing this initiative to Minneapolis. Had those conversations already started between corner store owners in Minneapolis um, and the community? I think I called him initially because um, I saw in the first video, the first video that came out, that graphic, gut-wrenching, eight-minute, 40-second moment, there was a probably 30-second clip within that that um, has what was clearly a young Arab dude coming out of the store. And Rami is obviously talking there about the video that captured the police officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. A quick reminder um, that the call to the police came from a corner store called Cup Foods. We talked about that earlier. The owner is Palestinian. So Rami mm-hmm. tells me he calls up Makram El Amin, who he's known for years, to figure out how are we going to address this. And Makram tells him... Um, there's another Palestinian owner of a set of businesses who's extraordinarily successful who's in the thick of another emerging controversy right now because of a set of tweets or, uh, that had surfaced from his daughter. That's Majdi Wadi, who maybe is sincere uh, about wanting to make amends, but you know, I know there's a lot of people who are listening to this who are probably like, hmm, he did call on the most prominent African-American Muslim in Minneapolis to help him out Maybe he just wanted some cover or maybe he just wanted somebody to save his reputation. And and that was the person 
to turn to. There was undoubtedly a part of that that did lead him to probably reach out to Makram as someone who he can turn to. Um, the fact is, though, this. All of us can probably relate to moments when we are facing it, when the proverbial shit is hitting the fan, so to speak. We are on our knees in intense sincerity. In fact, there's a Quranic verse that talks about the people who are lost at sea and when the, when the wave is about to overwhelm them and overcome them, they turn to God as, and the expression is mukhlasin fiddin. They turn to God with the most intensely sincere prayers and invocations. And when that wave subsides and you're back to shores, it's like, man, you never called on God in the first place. You're back to your wanton ways. And so there is part of that that is very just being human. Now, our interest um, in facilitating any type of reconciliation or reproachment with him and the broader community would be really on the basis of what it meant ultimately for building real black institutional-led power and strength in places like Minneapolis, whether that was led by Makram or others within the African-American community. This was something that required much more institutional commitment towards the larger types of conditions that I was explaining to Mejdi that our community has never really taken seriously. Um, it is still unfair on some level, even acknowledging anti-Black racism and the store owners, not to look at the larger socioeconomic context that these stores are operating in. The, the Palestinian immigrant or refugee is not responsible uh, for creating the conditions through which he's operating in, in most cases. I certainly see a lot of beautiful aspects of our community. I believe in the type of intervention that Makram is making with Majdi. I'm not cynical about it. I think it comes from a beautiful part of our tradition um, that is not only about calling out, but calling up, as long as that's what's driving it and it's driven with a vision for true justice and equity. We're going to be there, and I'm personally going to be committed and standing with him every step of the way. That's our show. If you want to put some faces to some names, we've got photos of Majdi Wadi and Makram El Amin on the Code Switch blog. This episode you're listening to was edited by you, Shereen Strange Girl. Well done. It was produced by Kamar Devarajan with field production help from Liz Baker and Gabriella Saldivia. Shout out to the rest of the CS Familia, Karen Grigsby Bates, Alyssa Jong Perry, Natalie Escobar, Jess Kung, L.A. Johnson, and Steve Drummond. Next week, because The Reckoning, capital T, capital R, is all-inclusive. It is. We're sticking to the theme of anti-Blackness within non-Black communities, even when they are brown people. Anti-blackness is actually a part of Asian American racial formation in a ton of ways. Lots to talk about next week on Code Switch. Until then, remember we have a huge back catalog, so if you're new to Code Switch and want to binge, we got you. We also have a newsletter and it's good to sign up. Go to npr.org/newsletters with an s. You'll find us there. I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji. I'm Gene Demby. Be easy, y'all. Peace. We're only 
only months away from Election Day, and every week or even every few hours, there's a new twist that could affect who will win the White House. To keep up with the latest, tune in to the NPR Politics Podcast every day to find out what happened and what it means for the election. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, homes.com. When you're home shopping as a parent, you have lots of questions about local schools. That's why each listing on homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by a dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. 